Well, if you have your Bibles today, turn to or start looking now for Hosea chapter 2, verse 14. And you can also go to the front and see what page it's on and find it that way. Hosea chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. Hosea comes right after the book of Daniel. If you can find Daniel, you can get pretty close. I want to share with you today uh, something I think is true of our society. uh, And that is a loss of hope. Uh, A sense of uh, things can get better. God does answer prayer. God will help me. God does care. God will intervene. Amen. And I, I just want to try to bring a sense of hope. Uh, Ephesians 2.12 talks about society, overall society, in Ephesians 2.12 as being, uh, as, he, as Paul puts it, without hope and without God in the world. Now, that's a bad place to be when you're without God is in the world. But Paul says people outside the church are without hope and without God in the world. But we're not in the world. We're here. We're ha- we have our Bibles open. We're looking to the God of heaven and we're saying, God, we're looking to you. We're needing you. And we're putting our faith in you. Um, I think this is especially true for people who have lost their walk with God. And so I want to speak to that also today. Having hope in God. It may be in your finances. You see no hope. It may be in your health. You see no hope. Job spoke in chapter 7... In verse 6 and 7, he said, My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and come to their end without hope. And remember that my life is a breath and my eye will never see good again. Now, but did he? Yes, he did. He got all his children back. He got all his wealth back. He got his health back. He got everything back twofold, but he lost hope. So you may lose hope, but it doesn't mean you've lost God. And I want to give you the God of hope. That's one of the things the Bible says about God. In Romans 15, it says, verse 13, May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace. That's the kind of God that he is. He's a God of hope. So if you found uh, Hosea chapter 2 and verse 14 and 15, let's look at it here. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. King James says uh, comforting her or her heart. This is the English Standard Version, verse 15. And there I will give her vineyards 
and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she will answer as in the days of youth, as the time when she came from the land of Egypt. Well, we might just uh, begin here by pointing out that Hosea is written about 750 years before Christ. And so we're a long time ago. And um, the day is the, the days of the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, I think we've got a map, if you can show me our map. Uh, the, the land of Judah is down in the south. The land of Israel up in the north. They are now divided in 750 B.C. And the ten tribes stay to themselves and Judah and Benjamin stay to themselves. So there's like a great division between these two groups. But the ten tribes are very idolatrous. They have forsaken the God of Israel, built their own idolatrous temples to other gods. And uh, God sends Hosea to them to bring them back to him. Because they are now without hope. In fact, the Assyrians are already preparing way up north. They are preparing to come down and capture the the ten tribes of Israel, take them all in uh, bondage to Assyria. So this all happened about 700 and some years before Christ. And he, the way that he does, he sends Hosea. Look at Hosea chapter 1 verse 2. Because God takes a unique approach to getting his message across. Hosea 1 verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredoms and have children of whoredoms. Now why would he do that? Well, he tells you. Hosea 2 Because the land, that is all the people in the land of Israel, have committed great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. They had started worshiping idols all over the ten tribes of Israel. They had built these idolatrous cultic uh, areas and uh, had rejected the words of Moses and were following all the strange gods. So God says... I am the one, I am your divine husband, and you've forsaken me for these other gods. And God goes on, and he says in verse 3, so he went and took Gomer, uh, now don't think of Gomer Pyle here, Uh, uh, it's not a great name for a wife to begin with, but nonetheless, he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore a son. She has three children, and each of these three children say something about the individual Israelites in the nation. Give me, the, give me that next one up. This, these are the symbols. Hosea represents God. Gomer represents Israel, because God is married to Israel in the covenant with Israel. And the children that they produce are the individuals within the nation. So here are the three groups. Verse, uh, verse 4, he, the Lord said to him, they had a, a son, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said to him, verse 4, call his name Jezreel, 
For in a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel and put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Jezreel was a place where they had a great defeat. It was famous for Israel's defeat. So he's saying, call this child Jezreel, which in everybody's mind meant defeat. It took them back to that great uh, military defeat that they had in their history. Well, verse 6, she again conceived and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name, no mercy. Ruhamah is the word for compassion or mercy. And lo, the prefix means not. So it's not loved. Not, not, uh, no compassion upon this. So call this child's name, no mercy, not loved. And it gives you an idea of where these people are. They are in defeat. They are outside the love of the God of heaven and not in the environment in which his blessings come and they participate in them. And then it gets worse. You thought that was bad. I mean, who would name their child not loved? (laughs) I hope you wouldn't. But if God told you to, I guess you should. Hosea 1 Verse 8, and when she had weaned no mercy or not loved, she conceived and bore a son, and the Lord said, call his name not my people, not mine. Again, a name of a child you don't want to give them unless commanded by God and you are a prophet. But what's he doing here? Well, he's showing that the people of God have become in these ten tribes. Now, Judah still worships God. There's a temple down in Jerusalem, but that's in the south. Up in the north, what you have here is defeat, lack of mercy, a people who have abandoned the God of the covenant, not my people. So this is the condition that you have in the old covenant. In the, among the prophets. Many of the prophets prophesied during this time. So God comes to he, them through Hosea, and he, as he begins to have this family, which becomes a living symbol in his day of what's going on spiritually in the nation. Then, and God speaking to him and through him to the people. So then God comes in verse uh, chapter 2 of verse 14 and 15. He, he gives these beautiful um, promises to them. And I want us to look at them this morning. Hosea 2 verse 14. Behold, I will allure her. Now here she is unfaithful. Talking about the people of Israel. But God says, I'm going to allure her. I'm going to court her and bring her back. I'll bring her into the wilderness and speak softly or tenderly to her. Verse 15, there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And she will answer like she did in her youth when she came out of the land of Egypt. There are several things about this passage that brings hope. One, if you'll notice 
how God brings us hope is that it is God himself who takes the initiative. Look at verse 14. He says, therefore, behold, I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And verse 15, there I will. There's not one thing she does. Except when he gets done with his courting, she responds and answers him. But he takes the full initiative in bringing us back. I have at times in my life felt like I was in a free fall spiritually. You ever felt like that? I'm just like, I can't, there's nothing to grab onto. There's no one that can help me. And then I discovered that underneath, God was lifting me up and he caught me. I will allure her. I will come to her. The first thing that God does is take the initiative when he wants to give us hope once again. So let me give you a second one. And that is his tenderness. Look at verse 14, the second part. He says, I will allure her, bring her into the wilderness, and speak tenderly to her. He's going to... The word allure... Um, I almost put, instead of God's tenderness, I almost put God's passion. But I thought that might be a little strong, so I'll stick with this word. But let me tell you the background on this word. This is a beautiful word. It has to do with a bridegroom. And it has to do with a bridegroom's fresh ardor. Do y'all know what I'm talking about? Y'all know ardor? And you know romance? Yeah. Some of you faintly remember, ah, yeah. God's tenderness as a bridegroom that he comes to her. Uh, And that's the word that is used here. And he speaks softly. He speaks tenderly to her. And this has God being pictured. Now remember, Hosea's been married to Gomer. Gomer's already departed from him. Gomer has three kids. And yet God is pictured here as going after his Gomer, his Israel, his nation, with, the, with first love ardor. Like a bridegroom. Do you know that in the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, uh, it does call God a husband, rarely does, but... The primary word for God in the Old and New Testaments in the covenant with his people is not husband, but bridegroom. There's a difference. A bridegroom is somebody who's freshly focused. A bridegroom is all about you. Amen? I mean, they don't care what the preacher's got on when they're walking down the aisle. They're looking at the bride. And they are very fervent. And I, I, I remember when I got married, that uh, it was about 2.30 in the afternoon, and I had already thought, you know, we're out of here by, you know, 4.30, 5 o'clock. And Jan kept dilly-dallying 
and said, hey, we've got to get to Texas. We're on our way to Texas. Get out of there and in my red Volkswagen with all my worldly goods, (laughs) and we're going to Texas. But y'all know I wasn't that interested in Texas. Amen? You know what I'm talking about? I was going to drive 30 minutes and stop. I'm tired. (laughs) That's a bridegroom. God loves his bride, though they've been married for years. See, that's why he calls God a bridegroom rather than a husband. A couple of verses, Isaiah 62, 5. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. In the New Testament, Matthew 9, 15, can the wedding guests mourn while the bridegroom is with them? John 3, 29, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. John the Baptist said, I'm just the friend of the bridegroom. I must decrease, he increases. It's bridegroom because the bridegroom has that freshness, focus, romance, courtship on his mind. And you know what else he has? Well, okay, uh, he ha- he's jealous. He's very sensitive about other competitors. Very protective. And Jan used to have, she used to date a guy in college where I met her, and ultimately we, we got married, but she dated a guy who was pretty close to him. His name was Frank. And he was a plumber. And the reason I know that is because she would always talk about Frank and what Frank would do, what Frank thought about something. One day I said, I don't want to hear about Frank. I'm done with Frank. Frank's gone back to West Virginia. We're headed for Texas. And I noticed this verse. Look at verse 17. I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth and they will be remembered by name no more. God does not even want you bringing up those old gods. I looked this up on the way over here, actually, because I I, I thought, I remember a verse. Exodus 23, verse 13. Pay attention to all I have said to you. Make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it even be heard on your lips. Do you want your wife or husband talking about old girlfriends, boyfriends? No. Don't even let it be on your lips. God, that's the way a bridegroom in his freshness is. And God has that for her. So he comes to her, and I want you to know, he takes the initiative And he comes not with a lackadaisical attitude. He's on a mission and he's got passion and he will speak tenderly to you. He's on fire for his church. And he never loses his fire. Amen. God doesn't grow old. And God doesn't run out of emotion. He's a fountain of fire for his people. So this is what he says. I will allure her. I'll bring her into the wilderness. I'll speak tenderly, passionately to her like a bridegroom. Then there's a third thing. 
God does to restore hope. And that is, notice his power that is given here. Verse 15 in the English Standard Version. He says, there, uh, and uh, where is there? Well, you notice in verse 14, I'll bring her into the wilderness. So she's in the wilderness. And there, verse 15, I will give her vineyards. And I was thinking about this, that in the wilderness is not where they had vineyards. In the deserts of their wanderings, in the book of Numbers, they didn't have any vineyards. I remember they had manna, and I remember they got water out of the rock and occasional meat. Where were vineyards? But I know they had them. And here's how I know, because I was looking up these verses that say, this. here's an example, Numbers 28, verse 7, where it says, when you bring your offering, your lamb or your goat, to the ta- tabernacle to sacrifice it, bring a quart of wine and pour it out as part of the offering. Where would they get wine? They had vineyards in the wilderness. Somehow, the power of God and the creativity of God can bring his power to bear even in the most remote desert places and give you an intoxicating experience in a dry place. So we trust his power. How do we have hope? We look every circumstance square in the eye and say, I don't know how to want to have hope in this, but I believe God can do anything and nothing is impossible with God. Can I get a witness on that? Can I hear an amen on that? Nothing is impossible with God. Luke 18, 27. So we look the thing in the eye and we hear God say, in the wilderness, I'll produce a vineyard. We grab onto that. One other one. Look at verse 15 again. There I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. The valley of Achor. Where is that? God says, I'm going to turn this valley, the word Achor means trouble. I'm going to turn your trouble into a doorway through which you have your future. Where do I get to hope? Through the door of trouble. (laughs) Uh, Is there another way around? (laughs) But that's what he's saying. Your trouble is your doorway. See, we think God has to have a good opportunity to work. Uh -uh. Actually, Achor was a valley in which in Joshua chapter 7, a man stole from God, and God had the whole nation stand trial, bring them together, and they took the guilty party, and he was executed by stoning because he violated the commandments. And God says, now, you you know how when you're standing there and it's all bleak and full of despair and there's no future? Now, God says, I am going to take that and give you 
a door to walk through. Instead of it being ending in a stoning, you are going to have a door of opportunity. That's the God of hope. He comes to us. He takes our worst-case scenario. He turns it around. It is as, as he says in Psalm 42. And Dave, I believe you guys have a song. You guys uh, come on and get ready to sing this because I'm going to give you this verse and I ask them to sing this song on hope this morning before we leave. But listen to Psalm 42, verse 4 and 5. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with shouts and songs of praise, a multitude. So why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him. Amen? Amen. Hope in God, for I will again praise Him. Amen.